All right, people, let's do this one last time. You know who I am. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. 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 I'm Spider-Man. I'm not the only one. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a Geek Explained Extra series that we're calling Spidey Sember. I am joined by my good brothers, the only two webheads who I would trust to protect New York City and beyond throughout the multiverse. First off, we have, of course, AJ Kincaid. Thank you. Thank you. Dibs on Scarlet Spider. Dibs on Scarlet, of course. And, and the incomparable Chris Carter. Swinging in on a Sunday afternoon. Hello, boys. <laughs> <laughs> we are going through every single theatrically released Spider-Man film, and we have come to what may be the creme de la creme of this first batch of films. We are here. We are talking about Spider-Man 2 from 2004. Yes. Um, what, what? What, what? Um, I will say that this is a film that I was very excited to rewatch because it's been a little bit. And with all the news with Alfred Molina showing up as Doc Ock in the No Way Home trailer, we are getting some hype. Hype is building. Hype. And a lot of people are revisiting this film to get a another sense of that character. Now, this film directed by Sam Raimi with, with uh, screenplay with some drama written by Alvin Sargent. Uh, this is kind of the Spidey film for a lot of people. Now, do you guys remember where uh, your first experience with this film? I'll start with Chris. You know, I, 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 I want to say, and again, not to continually date myself, I think I actually got it on Netflix when Netflix sent you DVDs. I mean, Y'all remember that? They sent you stuff in the mail? Yeah, exactly. And it was great because at the time we were, we were, you know, we were burning stuff. We were pirating. Of course. Right? So yeah, you know, of course. So we had this big old though, though, logic. Though, real quick disclaimer, the Geeksplain podcast does not condone nor does it uh, <laughs> recommend that you should pirate films. Yeah. And this is not an admission of guilt currently. I currently buy all my things. But at the time. Unless you're doing like Ish. save as right clicking and save as for NV nfts you can do that all you yes want. nft that's a whole other conversation that's <laughs> true <laughs> but I, I think i got it that way i really do and um i remember not being hyped about it because of how i felt about the first part of man which we talked about at length and how i kind of had issues with it but um so I, I didn't run out i knew there was a lot of hype behind this one too um but i didn't have the pressure to go see the second one like i did the first one and I again after and we'll get into it after watching the second one I would have much rather see that in the theater than the first one because like you mentioned Eric this is probably a lot of people's favorite in the in the in the uh, the Tobyverse when it comes to Spider-Man but uh, do I remember it I watched it from I burned it I loved it um and I'm going to talk about the soundtrack soon enough too but hell yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Netflix mail in DVDs people <laughs> it was a thing some days they used to do uh video games too before Gamefly kind of snuck in there. Oh, yeah. And now I don't even know if Gamefly is still in business. No, no, yeah, they, no. I don't know. That's a good point. Because now they have the pass for the PlayStation and the Xbox 2 pass, right, Eric? Do they have yeah. um, it's game, right. called Game Pass, right? Game Pass, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
AJ, do you it's remember watching kids. this film for the first time? I do, and I always have a funny story around it as well. All right, let's hear it. Was, it. Uh, it was 2004, so I was about 11 years old, and you know, it's trailers. Wait, were how old out. were you, real quick, for Chris? Can you repeat that? <laughs> I was 11 guy. years old. This <laughs> fucking guy. <laughs> um, and you know, I was excited as all hell, like Spider-Man Two. I love the first one. Like I loved Spider-Man. Like, come on, who doesn't? And so. Uh, my mom and my little sister, who's, you know, maybe nine or so, uh, go up to me and just like, hey, we're gonna go to the movies today. Like, what do you want to see? Spider-Man. It's like, uh, well, we don't really want to see Spider-Man. Just like I, the only thing in the world that I want to see right now as an 11 year old boy on this planet is Spider-Man. Like, please don't take this from me. <laughs> and, and so like my, and it, it took a, a little bit of haggling, but I convinced my mom of just like, look, it's going to be 10 o'clock in the morning. Like I will go to this, I will go to this spot. I will go sit as far away from anybody as possible. Please let me go see this movie. Because he goes, okay, the movies are at the same time. We're going to come out. We're going to meet at a certain spot and you're going to go see this movie alone. Can you handle this? I was like, yes, yes, I can. And so in retros, in retrospect, like as like, you know, a 28 year old in their late twenties. Like if I were to have a, a, a kid that's 11 year, years old, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. But that's just how shit went during that time. And so I sat far, way far up, you know, when you're like 11 years old. And so the very back when you're super high up is something cool and not, mm -hmm. and not shitty when you're an adult. And, and, you know, I had a rad time. I was by myself. I thought it was the coolest th thing until, you know, like years later, like when I was 16 and I was a mark of shame, but that's a whole other, whole other side. <laughs> but I, it's the funniest thing in that, like, I really think about it right, right now. And my fears of adults of just like, oh, if I had a kid, I'd be so worried that they would be that like somebody would go up and take them. And I really think about it now and I see that image and I think if there was any creeps, if there was any like diabolical people and they just saw this little 11 year old kid just go all the way up in the back and just sit by himself, that guy, that that terrible person is looking going, that kid's a plant. That's that's <laughs> that that's somebody who's going to get me. Absolutely not. That kid's got a wire on him. Fuck that one. No, no. I, I see the bait. Fuck that. I see the string. Uh, so I, I distinctly remember Spider-Man too, and I loved it, and I I still loved it, love it today. I had a good time with this movie. I my story is not as as fun as that one. Holy shit! Or cynical for that. Or matter, cynical. Too. Either. Yeah, it's a little that's, bit of both. That, that's little what you bring AJ Kincaid in here for fun that's and cynicism. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I this film actually has a pretty near and dear place in my heart. Um, this was the first film I saw in Arizona. I moved wow. to Tucson in 2004 after having lived in, uh, in Italy, New Mexico and Colorado prior. And I was not fucking with Arizona. I didn't want to go to Arizona. I loved Colorado. Um, I had just gotten my first girlfriend. I was like, I was riding high in Colorado, no. Colorado. Eric was, was doing well for himself. Um, <laughs> And coming to Tucson, I was very just like, I don't want to be here. It's fucking hot all the time. There's no snow here. What is happening? I hate this place. And <laughs> I think my parents kind of knew that I was real bitter about it. And so to placate me, they were like, hey, you really liked that Spider-Man film. There's a new one coming out. Because 
when I'm 12, I'm I'm not fucking watching trailers as a kid. I'm going out and touching right. grass. Like that's that's what kids exactly. did back then. And I was like, oh, cool, sweet, a new Spider-Man film. Well, yeah, sure. And I watched it and I was transported. It was incredible. And it was my favorite film for a little while. I absolutely adored it. And it was a film that really helped get me through that first, you know, couple months of being in Arizona. So I've always held this film near and dear to my heart, but it has been a while. And the last time I watched it for whatever reason, and I don't know why this was uh, a year or two ago, I didn't enjoy it as much as I remembered enjoying it. And I don't know what was going on with me at that time. Um, I did a whole Spidey month went on the podcast when uh, Spider-Man Far From Home came out. And I, I, I probably ranked this fairly high, but I ranked it lower than I was expecting to. And I wasn't sure why. But watching it again, it was really cool revisiting this, especially knowing, you know, and maybe it's watching the first film and then going into this one. I had a very good time with this film. Um, now with Spider-Man 2, when it comes to its production, it was just a hair more, uh, just a hair less complicated than getting the first film together. Because this film, there was so much shit going on, okay? So I'm just gonna walk you through this real quick. S the sequel was announced immediately after the opening weekend of the first film. It released, yeah, released on a Friday. That following Monday, they're like, sequel. And we have, you know, and we're going to make this work. And it's going to be called The Amazing Spider-Man. This film was initially titled The Amazing Spider-Man. And it was going to be written initially by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. That draft was then sent to David Kep, who wrote the first film, who got the writing credit for the first film. He did a little bit of a rewrite there. Then it was given to a an individual named Michael Chabon, who was hired to rewrite in September of 2002. His draft is a little strange. It introduces the lizard as well as the shocker. It makes Otto Octavius the same age as Peter Parker and forces in a love triangle between Otto, Peter, and MJ. So that was a thing. And it was just a lot. So having a love triangle between Peter, Otto, and MJ would have been a real fucking strange choice. But thankfully, after the last rewrite, Alvin Sargent, who was the final writer from the previous film to jump on the project as well as sam raimi himself sat down with all all three different or yeah all three prior drafts and kind of picked what they liked out of all of them and of course alvin Sargent gets the writing credit here now this film is influenced heavily by three different comics first being doc ock's origin story in the 1960s the second being if this be my destiny also known as the master planner saga one of the best Spider-Man arcs in all of comics. And the final one was Spider-Man No More, which took place in Amazing Spider-Man number 50, where Peter Parker gives up being Spider-Man. When it comes to the casting here, we got 
This was like the sign that things were going to start going off the rails real quick with the production of these films, because uh, after the success and filming of Seabiscuit, Tobey Maguire sustained an injury. And the rumor is he was also asking for a lot of money. He was asking for double the uh, double the pay that he got for the first film, as well as a percentage of the box office. And so go ahead. Are, are... Are we gonna have a? Is it gonna be a whole like just like we have a whole section in these film in these like film podcasts where we just talk shit about Tobey Maguire? Just dunk on Tobey Maguire in true like Peter the, Parker fashion. We have to bully him. I, oh God, it's kind of true though, isn't it? It's really kind of true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he doesn't not deserve it. Like yeah. that's the other bit too. If if you have if it's out there and then and it's not this is who you are. Like yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and you, have yeah. you have you guys ever seen uh, Molly's Game? No. Oh, I, I was thinking about that because like that's there's what... there's this film called Molly's Game where this uh, this woman gets swept up in like uh, organized gambling and crime and everything. And there's a character played by Michael Sarah, who yes. is just this absolute garbage person who uses and abuses people and brings people in because they think he's a nice guy. And reportedly, this film was written out of the real life experience of the screenwriter with Tobey Maguire. So Michael Sarah, exactly yeah. yeah, this is a recent movie, right? It's within the past, uh, uh, within the past years. decade. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly. What you're yeah, yes, I did hear about this. I did not know it's about, it's kind of based around Tobey though. That's yeah. Interesting. Apparently, he's a monster, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Maybe we're gonna get him back. Maybe, maybe we'll see. But I hope yeah, not. so. Maguire was injured and then rumor is he was also asking for an exorbitant amount of money. So Sony and Marvel were straight up like, yeah, okay. So we're going to cast somebody else. And the <laughs> front runner, the person who actually entered negotiations for this role was old Jake Yellenhall. Jake Gyllenhaal was brought in and had negotiations and was lined up. He was doing the workouts. He was getting in shape. He was going to be the next Spider-Man. And at the midnight hour, Tobey Maguire came back and they proceeded with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. What a different world we would be in if Jake right. Gyllenhaal became Spider-Man for Spider-Man 2 and 3. Yeah. yeah, man. Like, first off, maybe a little too pretty, but... Maybe probably probably would have, especially with Donnie Darko, like yeah. like see like seeing that kid as Spider Man. This is early two thousands, Jake Gyllenhaal too. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Like that, oh man. That that probably would have been really good though. You know, Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Gyllenhaal has uh, issues too. Um, there's stories mm -hmm. about him being very difficult to work with, and I know this is for sure much later in his career. But uh, I think it was after um, Jarhead. Um, mm. There is an mm. arc in I think it's Entourage where like they mimic what Jake Gyllenhaal kind of was was purportedly doing and just being really? exceptionally difficult to work with. Yeah, in fact, I can't remember the director that said and it was his very prominent director. He said he would never work with Jake Gyllenhaal ever again, and it was a wow. big deal. And and yeah, so do you know Eric how much uh how how much Toby made for the first go around and the second go around? I do not. Are we doing an early dip into Chris's money corner? I'm I, I'm not gonna hijack a story. I promise. However, we do. Um, he, okay, go. go, go. I'll tell. <laughs> so little one, just a little one, just a little one. Yeah, a little. Uh, he made four million for Spider Man. 
four million million um, damn now now as an actor and, and we know that like you said i'm not i'm not going to linger on this but he only been in a couple of things before right so it's a big payday for an actor who hadn't been probably paid nearly as well as this however when the film blew the world up um you know i guess maybe it's within his right to ask for a little bit more money um do you know how much he asked for how much did he ask for he was asking for 30 million Jesus left. Yeah. Do you know what they settled on? What did they settle? So he, he made four. And after this whole spiel, and what and you gotta admit, going back, if I were an executive, I might be like, Well, you were offered four, and now you're gonna get three. And that's me, but I get it. Stars run Hollywood. Yeah, he walked away with 17 million for Spider-Man 2. <sighs> So and they say that a hero could save <laughs> us. I'm not gonna stand here and wait. Oh my god. And it's hard. It's and, and again, we'll come to this, but it is I mean, as someone who's who like if you have power, like if you pay this guy a shit ton of money, your 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 film's gonna do well. But it's like there's the principle, there's like the yeah. there's like the pride behind it. But we'll talk about that when we get you. But I just wanted to put it out there because your story, like the fact that he held Sony hostage and like cool, and the, they still settled on 17 million, which I don't know the percentages, whatever. It, it kind of makes you think if it, that's a strategy, like that's kind of smart, smart business. Hey, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. basically what the MCU actors, specifically Robert Downey Jr., was doing. And yeah. man. But anyway, so uh, alongside the possible recast of Tobey Maguire, there was another big casting that needed to be done, that of the film's villain, Doc Ock. Now, eventually, of course, they did settle on an incredible actor, but prior to him, the names that were in the running for Dr. Octopus in this film, Ed Harris, Chris Cooper, Christopher Walken Ooh. and Robert oh. De Niro. <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. Robert De Niro as Dr. Octopus would have been awful. That would have, would been, have been so great to see though. It would have been incredible. I, I would be a walk-in guy myself to just see him just, oh, butterfingers when he drops Aunt May. Like, come on, come on. Peter. Parker, you finally arrived. <laughs> Welcome to your doom. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I know that's but not lazy. The, <laughs> the power of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been incredible, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, they ended up casting Alfred Molina. Tevya himself, the fiddler on the roof. I love I'm, Alfred Molina, and he is yeah. dynamite in this film. Mm-hmm. Like he is the, so freaking good. Like the 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 bar set by Willem Dafoe, yeah. and the fact that he not only matches him but kind of does arguably a, a better job. Like he's, as the, he's got just, a better design. In these oh, yeah, movies, yeah. that's for fucking sure. Hell yeah, yeah, he does. Well, and he's likable. Like that's the other part about it too. Like I think it's a big deal to have your, or at least relatable. I mean, yeah. I, I think that I think that we even brought this up. Whereas if you can make your 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 antagonist 
relatable or likable, then you have something, you know? And, and so I think that that's a big part of it. The dude, he is, he is motivated to a point. And so when I watched it again and, and, and he just embodies that he's, I don't, he, he's not, it's weird because when you think of an antagonist and of course you see his face, he's not in a costume. He's not done in a, a ton of CGI. Like it is him acting, portraying, embodying this character. And I think he did such a good job with that because he was like, he, he was likable. He was round. He wasn't sinister. You know, he wasn't just these things that, you know, we had seen with the previous installment of it. And I think that's what really had me gravitate towards this film a whole lot more. So yeah, having, having Molina play this character and especially all those people you mentioned before. Well, I loved, and it was so hilarious to hear all that. Like it's hard to imagine the film being successful and, and, and being pushed forward without anybody but Alfred Molina playing that role. I don't know. That's just, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. I, I think in like, yeah, Alfred Molina just like kills it at that part. And I think he knows exactly what he needs to do to both like, like he, he there's, there's just like so much where he like, it could be eating like, you know, chewing on the scenery, but it doesn't feel like it in, in like his portrayal. It does feel like he's taking everything 110% seriously. Totally yeah. agree. And it's, what's really cool is that, like Chris said, like they get you invested in his character to start with, mm -hmm. with, uh, with Otto Octavius in this film, he's almost Peter's like best case scenario. When he looks at him, he's the successful businessman and scientist. He's married to a gorgeous redhead and he's basically got his life together. This is Peter Parker's goals right. is Otto Octavius. And he's like obsessed with him. They have a really good rapport. And the moment that things kind of switch is the moment where Peter's like, well, this calculation doesn't seem right. Do you think? And Otto's just like, no, I'm right. This is it. I know what I'm doing. And from there, you kind of start to see the divide between the two of them. Um, mm -hmm. There was a Spider-Man video game that came out a couple years back where they do this expertly. William Salyers plays Otto Octavius and they go, they bring you the player into the game knowing this guy's going to be Doc Ock. You, the player, know this is going to be Doc Ock. We, the creators of this game, know this guy's going to be Doc Ock. So what we're going to do is we're going to make you not want him to become Doc Ock. And they weave in that story of getting you invested in his character so that when he eventually does turn, it hurts all the more because you don't want to see him go down this path that he was almost laid out for regardless of any choice that he made. And Chris actually brought it up, um, the idea of power. The studio having power, um, Toby having power. This film really is a film about power and responsibility. True power, you know, and true responsibility, great power, great responsibility. It's something that is woven through every Spider-Man film, whether they want to actually say the words or not. But it's especially prevalent here this is a true blue like peter parker film because in this film peter parker's life fucking sucks yeah. like he's in this dingy apartment with mr Ugh. ditkovich one of the greatest characters in the entire trilogy it's true rent huh? rent <laughs> He's in this apartment that he hates. He can't be with the girl that he loves. He's working this like 
crappy pizza delivery job. I will say going into this, again, it bears repeating title sequences. Holy mm. shit. Yeah. Everything that the title sequence from the first film does right, this film does even better. Because it tells you the story of the first film. So that even if you haven't seen it in a while, this the title sequence with these amazing like hand painted like visuals of scenes from the first film gives you the story. It feels like a blockbuster. It feels like an event, and it's it's the same way that Star Wars is like has the title crawl. It's the same type of mm -hmm. deal, and it really sells you on this film and this character. And the opening does that as well with Peter just having the worst Parker luck because that's just who he is. I loved what you said that this that this is such a Peter Parker film and I think like of all the Spider-Man films we've gotten this is the most Peter Parker like the, the, at least like the given circumstances of his life like whether it be Tobey Maguire or not doesn't it, it doesn't matter like how the story goes is such like this this is a guy who does not like succeed <laughs> like Definitely. he does not he does not succeed as, as peter parker and like nothing gets better from like he try he tries to get the pizza in so badly and he still can't do it like do you guys love that scene where he's like battling with mops for 30 minutes yes oh so yeah. sam raimi yeah so exactly sam raimi. yep and like i think that's why i love this movie and like i think it's probably of like the Peter Parker like movies, definitely my favorite up there. Yeah, and I mean, the, there's that great scene too where he realizes he's not going to make it, so he drives his scooter into an alleyway and then comes swinging out with the pizzas, and that bystander's mm -hmm. like, "Hey, he stole that guy's pizzas!" <laughs> like all of that Sam Raimi isms that you were talking about, the camp, the quirkiness, mm -hmm. it's all still there and just dialed up to 11. We have the incredibly enthusiastic crowds again, the like, the little go Spidey, like yeah. all that kind of stuff is here. And I absolutely love it. Now we talked about just how good Alfred Molina is in this movie, just going all over the place from scene to scene, chewing scenery, but leaving crumbs enough for us to enjoy. Mm -hmm. There's another actor that I want to spotlight here because watching this film, I was mesmerized by his performance. And that's James motherfucking yeah. Franco. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Is James Franco uh. a dynamo in this film? He goes <laughs> literally everywhere and does the <laughs> most at all times, regardless of whether it's needed or not. Yeah. You knew exactly what you were going to get from him when they're like doing the opera house scene where it's like it's uh, or no, it's not that it's the. Um, what is it? The the gala scene where Peter's going there to take pictures, finds out that Mary Jane is now happily engaged to an astronaut. And James Franco, not Harry Osborne, James Franco comes up to Peter Parker and says, hey, where's your buddy? Where's your buddy Spider-Man? He like slaps him. And I'm like, yes, this is incredible. <laughs> I love That's... every single bit of this. What a choice. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the when you see him at first and you see him and they're like they're celebrating Peter's birthday and he's like, oh, I forgot it was my birthday. And he's like, hey, man, like I'm running the company now. It's like, OK, so he's going to be 
fairly subdued like the first film. He's got that James Franco charm. And then he just goes full channeling Willem Dafoe in this party scene where he's just like, hey, you're my brother, right? And he like slaps him. He's like, stop taking pictures of Spider-Man. Tell me who he is. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. And the scene I- where where Otto is, has the like the little super collider thing going, and he's like, it's my money, shut it down! Like, <laughs> he's doing everything in this he, film. Yeah. I, you know, it's, that's, that's why I like this one so much more. I feel like the characters were a little more fun and fleshed out, and, and just things I could, like enjoy more of. You know, I got less mm-hmm. between McGuire, because it feels like that's basically the film and then the first one but here we have franco who i didn't mind like honestly yeah he's over the top but i, and I think that might be an acting thing like if you go back and you watch movies from like maybe the early 80s or mid yeah, mid 80s the acting is horrible like how the yeah. fuck did this ever get on camera and you know and so we, you look at some of the stuff now early 2000s and it's like well, you can see it kind of changing but it's still kind of trashy like that was maybe yeah. not but him and then kirsten dunce like between those three and then as you know you want to see the main villain is an alfred molina it's like this is a fun quartet of actors to kind of watch play in the sandbox so mm-hmm. for me having them bounce off because you have moments of of Toby and of uh, and Franco, and then you have Kirsten and Toby, and then you have sometimes you have Franco and Kirsten, and and so th- you have these moments, and it's like this movie felt big and bold, and there was a lot a lot of things going on, and so yeah. because of those things, and again, I'm not disagreeing with you, Eric. I'm, I'm not saying that because you're right. Some of it's over the top and like, oh my god, let's reel this dude in. But Sam Raimi, being Sam Raimi, again, this is the guy who takes what forty takes to catch these things from the last one. That's the was completely unnecessary, <laughs> you know. It, you know at this point i even despite all of these it was still super watchable and i, oh, I was yeah. really impressed with the cast yeah like, don't get still, me wrong i don't no I, I know i i fully enjoy his ridiculousness and yeah. it's it made that that whole film again feel like time in a bottle because yeah, you're right it sure. is very early 2000s acting yeah and the choices that sam raimi makes with the characterization some of the script um it is definitely that way, but it is incredibly over the top. And it's something that I love about it because it feels like the yeah. shit that you would see in a comic book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of like I, it's hard for me to watch, especially because it's just James Franco in you know, sort of like new light and everything like that. Right. And like I like I do love Sam Raimi, like his vision on just like trying to, to literally bring like something from the comics uh, to life and like and i do agree in that like that corniness and that cheesiness and that like um that melodrama like is certainly a part of comic books like in any in any form or or in any age that you go through it's going to be there um but like yeah like kind of like watching james franco specifically like it's very stereotypical like if you look at the character and like what he says and like what he's supposed to be like his actions are and intentions are like it's very just like okay this is supposed to be like the the turn where we see harry's harry's not that good of a guy no and we we talked about it last episode like harry has always been a bad friend yeah like when when at the beginning of that film he's just like why would you why would anyone want to know that little tidbit about spiders pete and then he goes to mary jane he's like hey did you know this fact about spiders <laughs> right it's like what a dick yeah <laughs> but like 
it's uh, it's really this film that you see the divide and the friendship end and when he finds out he's spider-man i love that i love that shit so I, that was good. that yeah. was great reveal on that it was great serious scene. like like it, it, it took itself seriously and i and i think mm-hmm. that was great and i love that you have these two characters throughout two films that you've kind of really enjoyed maybe if not for the characters they play but for the actors who play them because there yeah. is that too and 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 again and what what Andrew what AJ said was absolutely right. Like looking at anything Franco has done, and even there's a couple other actors like that right now too. But you know, at this point, you have to look at that with the with the separate lens. And so watching that, it's like, oh man, this isn't this is good. You know, you 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 care about this. So let me ask you guys real quick, just sidebar. Do you think that when they set this up, did they think that it was going to be a trilogy after the first one, or was it? I. Th- I don't think they had it in mind that it was going to be a trilogy when they did the first one, but it's hard not to think, okay, we could turn this into a franchise. Um, right. This was before everything had to be a franchise, though, so there is that aspect to it. But I'm sure Sony was looking at what Fox was doing with the X-Men films at this point oh, and yeah. being like, this could be our X-Men. Sure. We could have a few of these going. Also, the parallels to, like, you know, the Tim Burton Batman movies where they weren't sure if the first Batman movie was going to work out. And so they threw the big guy, the, the iconic uh, villain in the first one, and then let a, a really good, well-known actor, like just have fun as, as the villain and like a lesser known actor take in as the superhero That's and, a point. and kind of like see where it goes from there. Like, you know, like Spider-Man's going to pull in some money no matter what. And like, if we break even, we break even. And like, if it does well, it does well. Oh shit. It's a box office smash. Hell yeah. Let's make some more. And like, I feel like as a creative, like when you get Spider-Man, like it's hard not to go. All right. Like I'm definitely going to make this as like my idea is the only Spider-Man movie that's ever going to exist. But if I get another one, like got like two more ideas that are going (laughs) to equally be awesome. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Just one to one. I was wondering. Yeah. So Another performance that I really want to highlight here is uh, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May. This film is kind of like the Aunt May show because (laughs) every single time that she pops up, I'm like, you are the most engrossing piece of this film because like you get you get her uh, talking about how, you know, how she wishes she could meet the person who, you know, who caused uncle ben's death they're talking about it's been two years since the first film and then the scene where peter admits to her i could have stopped the guy that killed uncle ben it is heartbreaking chris said just now like the scene between uh franco and mcguire works when it's revealed that he's spider-man because it's taken seriously and sincerely this film is the same way Peter gets this big monologue about how he could have stopped him, but he was being irresponsible. He didn't. He held Uncle Ben's hand as he died. And he's like, you know, I've been wanting to tell you this for so long, but I've just never found the time. And he reaches for her and she pulls her hand away from him. Doesn't say a word. And she just gets up and she leaves. Like, oh my God. So good. The directing, the performance is incredible. Cinematography Mm -hmm. showing the distance between them. Mm really really well done and then of course we get that iconic scene where she's moving out of the um moving out of the house um and that little kid who was brought over to help move out an entire house for five dollars like kid you're getting scammed (laughs) 
<laughs> you yeah, you'd be like, old enough to realize this, but you're getting scammed. <laughs> like, I know the economy in 2004 slash 2003 is not okay, but like for five bucks for what you're doing, like that's that's, that's a lot of manual okay. labor. Yeah. That's a lot of manual labor. So, and she's she gives him that, you know, I believe there's a hero in all of us. And that's, she gives him the entire thesis of the film mm-hmm. talking about, you know, he needs someone. You know, this kid, he looks up to Spider-Man. Everybody needs somebody. Sometimes we have to give up the thing that we want to do the right thing. Just incredible. We dunked on the scripting for la- for the last film a little bit. And there yeah. is definitely some of that in this film as well. But bit. that moment is so true and so mm-hmm. sincere. And it it you can't be help you can't help but be inspired by it. It for is sure. Absolutely. A fantastic scene. And not to mention, she is the centerpiece of the bank heist scene, which yeah. features Joel McHale pre-community mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> I looked at that and I was like, Joel McHale? Yeah. <laughs> You're here? Just and I don't think we mentioned it last uh last episode, but I also want to make a quick uh quick addendum to to the uh to the last episode. Macy Gray just macy gray just in general if you want to know how what year this film came out macy gray was featured in spider-man one yeah (laughs) but for this one like it was really incredible to see just how much shine that aunt may got as a character and the idea that they were gonna make one of the big emotional uh beats of this narrative be Aunt May, who is arguably, you know, a side character in the first film. And I really loved her performance. I thought it was really good. This is like your classic old Aunt May. And she mm-hmm. plays it to perfection. I agree. Yeah. I also loved what you said in... Oh man, the entire thought just left. That, that's too bad. It was so that's good okay. too. <laughs> Think about it. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just piggyback off what, uh, what both you guys are saying. Um, I really feel that this film took itself seriously. And mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of don't know if the first one did maybe, um, maybe it did, maybe it didn't know, but like AJ said, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if you're going to get your only, your, your one go. This might be your shot that you, this, this might be it, but we were fortunate enough to get a second one and they took it very seriously. And I think the storytelling as a whole, mm-hmm. and then you get, you get, scenes like the one you're talking to eric and we have the reveal at the very end um and we have you know we have uh, the relationship built with doc ock uh and and with peter and it's just all of these things are, are handled with care knowing and with the intent to hurt the audience because if you can do that you know not to pull something out but like how they did harvey dent with uh the dark knight yeah. uh, you know in in your in your in your video game story eric that in my opinion that 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 works so well because like a really good origin story you know where this is going to go you the audience member know it's if you can forget that for a little bit or just kind of let that slide out of your mind and Mm -hmm. that's when you have something successful and resonate the way it does and that's again why i think this film is is as successful and is looked upon as the way it is yeah I completely, and that, that's the exact direction I wanted to bring my thought into. No, like what you said on, you know, 
us kind of dunking on the like the first movie script but there's still that same element in this movie those elements that you know kind of didn't work in the first one work well in this one because it really does feel like sam raimi had a moment of just like okay i made one spider-man movie and i made a bunch of mistakes and missteps i get to make another one and i know exactly what to do that i didn't do the first time yeah. yeah. And there and there are still little like skips here and there. I still really and maybe it's intentional. I still really cringe at the, you know, I'm not just an empty seat anymore. Cut me, I bleed. Like him trying to like wax poetic to MJ when it's like, bro, she's not. Dude. Yeah. Come on. But yeah. And again, that could be intentional as well as a as a choice for the narrative because Peter Parker is inherently cringy. But there are definitely missteps here, but there is such a sincerity with this. There is such an emotional heart in this film that really carries over everything and makes you forget about mm -hmm. other cringy stuff that happens here. Um, and I think alongside that heart, you get a lot of art in this film. This film is incredibly well made. And one thing mm -hmm. that I want to point out that I'm sure Chris is going to love, practical effects every yes. single bit of practical effects in this film is done to perfection all four tentacles of doc ock were practical yes there was cg here to enhance things but each one of them had i believe two different puppeteers to make the to make each tentacle move differently each of them had its own personality and just the attention to detail and stuff like that really sells you on why this film worked and why it made so much sense to have this be um be directed by sam raimi because he would make that choice he yeah. would say no we have to make this practical or people aren't going to believe it yeah. and when it comes to some of the scenes that really uh stick out in my mind for the film i mean the birth of doc ock is straight up sam raimi horror like in the operating room with mm -hmm. the tentacles, tentacles like yeah. reacting and like taking out this room of doctors there is such a horror vibe there the woman gets pulled screaming and dragging her nails into the darkness that one guy grabs an ash style chainsaw to try yeah. and cut one of the uh, tentacles they go full horror in that and that wouldn't be possible without utilizing all of the same stuff that sam raimi used working on stuff like the evil dead and all the practicality that you get out of horror filmmaking for sure now mm -hmm. as we've stated before chris is a horror filmmaker and a very successful one at that oh, thank you. and thank so you. i would love to know your um your perspective on practical effects use in this film and how yeah. it enhanced the filmmaking in itself well the and, and and they went back and that's one of the first things that people ask since we're talking about the new trailer for the new spider-man that yeah. uh, that the the tentacles will will not be practical no. this time so we all cgi yeah so that brought up what you're talking about is how efficient and it's difficult like the the argument between track practical and cgi i'm kind of in the middle with it because it is, it is when done right, it's done perfectly, but it's more expensive. And I would, I would also say that we have one of the great scenes of this film. And one of the iconic ones is the one at the, the cafe or the diner, when he's got the reflection and the, and, and the car comes through the window and it's all slow motion, which by the way, that, that, yes, that's popular now. Thank you, DC. But it, at before it wasn't as prevalent. So that was a new kind of visual aspect we hadn't seen yet. 
And that was all CGI. So when you marry the two and you do it efficiently, I mean, that, that's obviously the, the, the standard answer. But th the fact that they had puppeteers for all of his um, tentacles, think about, the pro think about the rehearsal time, not just for the actor. But for the puppeteers, how, yeah. how are we not going to be in frame? We, then we have to paint that out in post. So the fact that they are practical made it look great. But imagine the headache that that went through. But only Sam Raimi could have pulled that off. He was mm -hmm. the only dude who was going to be like, we can we can do it this way because I've done it that way. Because, you know, and, and he and, and again, that usually is a horror movie director. And like you said, Eric, because, you know, you can find the most bang for your buck. And I'm sure... You know, he said, if we had a guy on, you know, above and then two people on a platform below, and that's how they did Elf, the ALF, you know, whatever. Um, but they had it underneath it. So, so, so the puppeteers um, could go high and low at the same time and they could kind of be in sync with each other. But my argument on it would be that we wouldn't have a lot of those scenes if there was no CGI marriage with the practical effects. So, you know, just something to think about. I mean, what do you, what do you guys think about it? Like, I don't, I, you know, I... I think you have to have some CGI, obviously, but I don't, I don't know, man. I think that practical and CGI, it's gotta be a 60, 40 blend maybe, but. I think I there's know. definitely an argument to be made that you need a healthy amount of each. I think there is something that, I mean, something that I think is relevant now, uh, Eternals mm. came out recently. And there's something about that film it is gorgeous to look at, regardless of what you think about the movie itself. Mm -hmm. It is a gorgeously shot film, and that's because Chloe Zhao basically said, I don't want to do the green screen shit that we do for all the other Marvel movies. I want to shoot on location. And it makes a difference. And with the over-reliance of CGI nowadays, whether it's for budget, whether it's for the fear of spoilers or leaks or anything, um, CGI, I feel like, is really over overused in a lot of blockbuster films and specifically superhero films. And you can see just how much, because you're right, there is a healthy blend of both in this film. You couldn't get some of the shots that you get in this <laughs> film without the use of CGI. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the CGI has aged a little bit. This is almost, you know... Uh, <laughs> This is a this is a 10 year, you know, 15 year old film at this point. But I do think there's something magical, like you said, about practical effects when they're done right. They yeah. are incomparable to something that feels hollow, like really just sterile CGI. That's so, that's my mm -hmm. thought. So I want to just real quick, AJ, I, don't, I, I just I have. So have you guys seen the BTS for The Mandalorian? Yes. Yeah. So what Disney is doing? Yeah. So you know they they started that um with, with the Lion King with the with the animals in the background, but now uh that's kind of going to be the face of because you talk about the location specifically and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what it's basically used for you know so you know you and you've got this panel of lights that actively reflect off of actors costumes and you have a rim light and hair light and it's all done organically from this giant it's not a green screen it's actually been produced to to reference whatever background that is mm -hmm. so and again don't get me wrong if you have the budget to shoot in africa go shoot in africa but if you can shoot it for one sixteenth of the budget on lot d and walt disney studios um and and you not be able to tell the difference i mean where we're at right now and going forward for rear projection lcd and led screens for background like a mat it, it's 
you and I, Eric, talked about this too, when they talked about bringing back, I can't think of the actor's name who's dead and uh, to, to, to be in, in, oh God, was it James Dean? I think it was James, James Dean. Dean. Yeah. They were going to oh. bring back and they were going to artificially create him to be in this film. And it's like, yeah. I know it's a different conversation. It, it completely is. And I'd love to, to explore that later, but you know, where CGI is going is, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, so, I, I think there's a quote or a recent quote by um, Andy Serkis where he's just like motion capture and, and CGI is going to be the new makeup. We're just going to like whoever's going to play Abraham Lincoln yeah. next is just going to have his face on his while he does the performance, which is kind of just it's freaky. It, yeah, it, yeah. And it's kind of messed up. And like as mm -hmm. performers, like it really makes you wonder about what the value of performance is especially yeah. now with like um with like chris said trying to reproduce uh deceased actors the idea of like deep fakes becoming more and more Dude, uh, prevalent yeah. like it's yeah. it's scary for performers because you don't know you don't know what's going to happen there but bringing it back i do think sure. that you know with the blend of cgi and practical effects it makes a difference and I think that it's hard to find that line, but once you do find it, you should stick with it because going mm -hmm. too far either way will have a negative impact on your film. Spider-Man 3, Sandman. <laughs> okay, Sandman so, CG actually looks good. I, We're not talking I was, about okay, that. Right, I was going to say, yet, there's, there's one scene though that looks really freaking good. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but one thing that is really freaking good is the soundtrack <laughs> to this film. Yeah. Holy yes. shit! Two thousand four. Yeah. This soundtrack. I know Chris has been dying to dig into this track list. Yeah, Chris, man. talk to us Vind about. Oh, talk to us about the soundtrack. So we've got. I'm, so I'm looking at it right now, right? So we've got we've got tracks from and again mid two thousands, right? So let's rewind it a decade and a half. So we, you know, uh, dashboard confessions there. Train, Hoobastank, Jet, Yellow Card. Oh my God, I still love that song. I still enjoy it. Same, Some, dude. You know, Gifts and Curses by Yellow Card is one of my favorite songs to listen to. Exactly, and you know, and and, and this is before Maroon Five got huge. Taking Back Sundays on here. Lost Profits yeah. is on here. The Ataris is on here. Like, it's just it's it's hard to find a bad song on this soundtrack. This was this was I mean the first one that I can remember buying the soundtrack to a film that I needed to have, and so. Same. And you know it's funny because there's that there's that genre switch in the mid 2000s for types of music. You know, you're kind of coming in to the alternative, but more but the more emotional part of it. You know, the emo it, it was never a phase, and I agree, it never was. You know, what I mean? so a lot <laughs> a lot of that stuff was on the soundtrack. But dude, vindicated for me for from my dashboard. I it, when it's on, I listen to it. So Hell yeah, I, man, you know. it's great. And the 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 soundtrack from the first film did a lot right. There yeah. was a it was a snapshot of music from 2002, which 2000s movie movies, their soundtracks are a great snapshot of the year that they come out in. Mm -hmm. And I it isn't that way anymore, which makes me sad. Um, the most recent film that I can think of that did that well was uh, Black Panther and Birds of Prey. Oh, having yeah. like real snapshots of the music of the time. And when it comes to some of the stuff on here this was this was my music growing up yeah like this was alternative pop um you know pop 
punk a little bit sure a lot of emo and yeah. you know pop grunge that kind of deal that's yeah. professional taking back sunday afi like that was my business and yeah. like that was the mid-2000s is really where that style of music was prevalent totally. and i still love listening to dashboard confessional oh yeah i still love listening to yellow card Dude, like yellow card sure. i listen to on the uh, weekend ocean avenue like, man i ocean had that avenue. everything i burned yeah uh taking back sunday taking back almost sunday. every single one of their cities we yeah we and it, it's funny because now it's this weird balance because you're right. I think Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar on Black Panther was awesome. I, I, that that was that soundtrack was awesome too. But here it was kind of this perfect marriage of just uh, of just time and availability. These these bands were were coming up, but they weren't big. You talk about Maroon Five now; they're huge. Yellow Card now, you know, not so much. They're, they're there, but here you were able to get a a, a, a quite a, a name a few named bands onto your soundtrack. If you did this now, the music licensing alone, like everybody knows it, would you know, bankrupt you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tarantino can get away with it, but he pays a huge amount too. Taika for, uh, played uh, for the immigrant song when he got uh, mm -hmm. Ragnarok. So exactly, and he had to go to. Oh my God, I'm totally I'm blanking on who sings this. They sing "Stairway to Heaven." Led Zeppelin. Thank you. Sorry. Um, and like he had to go to and actually beg them to let him use. And then I think it ended up being a couple million dollars just to use that one song. It. And if you look at this, this track list and this breakdown, there's a lot to be said about that. So yeah. no, it was, I think it was a perfect time. Like you said, Eric, the mid 2000s yeah. was kind of where this was really birthed and accepted by a lot of people. And so, yeah, man. And in a way was, you made an excellent point. These were bands on the come up. These were bands yeah. who in 2004 hadn't reached the height of their popularity. So they were just like Spider-Man scrappy up and comers trying to, you know, make a name for themselves. And yeah. what bigger stage would you have than a film about Spider-Man? Yeah. 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 Couldn't yeah, the, agree more. The soundtrack's incredible. The score by Danny Elfman. Danny so is at his height, is at the height of his powers here. Um, <laughs> just incredible stuff but as we're as we're kind of wrapping up here i'd like to talk about some of my favorite scenes if you guys have favorite scenes feel free to let me know as well um the bank heist into the first uh spidey ock fight is excellent super well done doc ock you know fighting spidey in the bank and then that leading into him uh, kidnapping Aunt May and going up the clock tower. That moment where he breaks the clock hand off of the clock face, throws it, Spidey webs it and fucking like launches it back at him. So cool. Yeah. So freaking cool. Yeah. Um, and then also we haven't talked about it much, but when Peter loses his powers, this is a whole deal about work-life balance, which is maybe why it really, uh, it really stuck with me this watch around the impossible <laughs> battle of work-life balance um and peter deciding not to uh not to have his powers anymore he gets that great scene with uh, uncle ben you know where they're in that you know heaven spiritual car where he kills uncle ben all over again and <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, like, but when you really say it out loud, it's really pretty fucked up. It is super <laughs> fucked up, but it's true. But it's true. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> exactly. Like, but when you say it out loud, it's, 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 it's still fucked up. But like, and he basically says, you know, I'm Spider-Man no more. 
there is this incredible sequence that features raindrops keep falling on my head that is the highlight of the movie for me it's just this montage of peter just being peter parker living his life watching theater going to work eating hot dogs while yeah and you just or it just didn't wear like you see like the cop cars like speed by and peter's like looking after them takes a bite of his hot dog and keeps walking and it's like it's great and then he watches a kid get mugged at the end and then it's really sad yeah but like again like having something you would never see this in a superhero film today and that speaks again to sam raimi's sensibilities as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and just like the choice of the raindrops keep falling on my head like as a song for this is just incredible yeah and then of course the most iconic scene from the film the train sequence yeah yeah i am a sucker for train sequences i'm a i'm a sucker for anything having to do on a train and this is iconic this is the moment where toby Maguire's spider-man went from popular to an icon Mm -hmm. is him stopping that train at the front regardless of the faces he makes at the front yeah (laughs) like like it's it's bad but the train sequence you know the fight on the train uh i watched the extended edition by the way i don't know what tradition you guys watched um i think the standard yeah nice well the the extended edition gives you like an additional like two minutes of that train sequence where they're just beating the hell out of each other at one point they're fighting on the side of the train and doc ock looks over pulls himself up to the top of the train and spidey looks and he gets hit by an oncoming train it's brutal but it's really well done Mm -hmm. and you know, at the end when he gets, you know, messiah surfboarded back by the crowd after he stops the train. Yeah. And the guy, we touched on this last last episode, but we got to talk about it here. He's like, he's just a, he's just a kid older than my son. And I'm like, he is easily your age, sir. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, exactly. He's, he's just a man. Yeah. Like me <laughs> and my friend Jeff. <laughs> We're, we also turned 30. We have a close birthday with yeah. each other. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. Like, yeah. Like, it's... I get it. He's supposed to be like 19 or 20 in this we, film. To which, like, this, that moment would, would have really worked with like Tom Holland's Spider Man. Yes. Like, absolutely. Yeah. That would have worked like way better. But like, you know, the intention was there, but it was not yes. executed correctly. But again, it is still treated sincerely. It's not yeah. like a wink and a nod. It's mm-hmm. not meant to elicit a laugh like it does. And it's one of those moments that I really, really enjoy. And another moment, mm-hmm. I mean, we get that final sequence, that final fight in the, you know, gigantic, you know, half submerged uh, warehouse and the docks. I said last episode that there is little to no chemistry between Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire. And I would say that mostly continues in this film. I just don't believe them together. But the moment where part of the building is falling and Peter runs and he catches it to stop Mm -hmm. it from falling on MJ. And he just looks down and he goes, hi. And she says, hi, back. I live for that shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. He's just like, hi. She says, hi. He's like, this is really heavy. 
and i just like that's fucking spider-man like i love that shit and then we get the great ending where you know mj leaves a totally stable individual at the altar for no reason um she knew that he was a uh, werewolf known as man wolf he wasn't a werewolf yet he was a hundred percent a werewolf already a hundred percent and they knew this is that why she when she did the upside down kiss it didn't feel right this this was you have whiskers this is my this is my mary jane movie that that i've written for years (laughs) that is a pair as a side by side to spider-man 2 where mj finds out her fiance is a werewolf and her best friend is (laughs) spider-man Wait, is that true? Like, I don't, I don't know this part of it. In, in like, the comics, uh, in, oh. in the comics, John Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson's son, becomes a character called Manwolf. And it's fantastic. Oh, okay. He has his own run, and it's fantastic. But in the movie, <laughs> there is no evidence to tell you that he is Manwolf. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But I do love the moment where, you know, he's brooding and being a sad boy because that's what toby mcguire does 100 percent. and you know there's a knock at the door and uh rachel from friends is there in her wedding dress <laughs> and she, God, it's so true though it feels the same way it's the same and she it's the same dress no but it's you know they're they're standing there and she gives him the speech and he's you know tells her like i can't be with you and she's like fuck you i get to decide that it's very cool. It's very Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. And the moment where they hear, they're about to embrace and they hear the sirens. And he looks out the window and he looks back and she gives him the go get him tiger. My fucking hairs stood on end. I got goosebumps. <laughs> I love that shit. I love that shit. I would say it's the most like classic Mary Jane feeling we get out of the entire trilogy. Totally agree. Totally agree. So this oh. film... Go ahead. Uh, well, just piggybacking off favorite scenes. I love Alfred Molina talking to um, when Doc Ock yes. is talking to the tentacles. I love that scene so much. It is so fun. It is. It's dark and like really creepy and really kind of scary. And like you can you can tell Sam Raimi was just like, let's really dial this up, Alfred. Let's really get out in there. Hell yeah, Chris. Yeah. You have any other uh, f- favorite scenes? My- it's funny. My favorite scene is the one in the cafe when, when the car goes to the window mm, and you can kind of catch the reflection because cool. it felt, one. it felt like a one take. Like, and, and yeah. again, I know one takes of the rage now and back then it was not really. And, and yeah, it was mostly CGI, but we had our characters in there where all of those characters were played by people. There was not a CGI character in that moment. So it felt, even though it felt outlandish it was still grounded if it, it, it reminded me that was to me and 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 the subway or the the train scene that you're talking about eric were the two the two ones that i could feel whereas if you kind of cleaned them up you could put them in like and again i hate comparing anything to an mcu film but you could drop those in an mcu film and it, they they would work they wouldn't feel outdated and out of place to a degree yeah. um but no that that is by far and away my favorite scene because of of just it, it's looked so cool and there was so much technical brilliance behind it and so yeah that that but that but that, that was my first scene in the film hands down hell yeah and this hell film yeah. is filled with incredible scenes incredible mm-hmm. moments incredible performances and that's probably why it made so much money Damn. which means it's time ladies and gentlemen <laughs> welcome back to chris's number corner <laughs> so 
this did make a lot of money. I, sh I should note though, too, it's important to find out our baseline. Where did we start? Where are we at? So it the budget for the film was 200 million. And it's important to know that that was $60 million more than the original one, yeah. right? So there, they had more money to play with. Um, it, it Before we get too far in it, it was well-received. 7.4, uh, 93% rotten. Right, so we are we're we're we're, we're certified fresh, and we're eighty three percent Metacritic. There really wasn't a lot of bad press coming out of this. Everybody pretty much the consensus was, is that they, they really really enjoyed it, um, uh, uh, pretty much across the board. It was only the third highest grossing film this year, with all of those accolades taken into consideration. Whoa! Remember, yeah. Wow. Now remember this: we're in two thousand and four. Two thousand and four. Remember. What, yeah, what, what was one and two? Um, thank you. I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> they do, that that's a wonderful intro to my point here. So the first one um, was Shrek 2, which was... Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, which, I get it. all right. Yeah. So, and this is for the year. I'll keep that in mind. It's not for the weekend, it's for the year. So, you know, and we have that weekend benchmark. It wasn't the highest grossing film of the weekend either. I'm sorry, um, domestic for the year. The mm. weekend it was. For the films that made that came out in 2004, Shrek 2 almost made a billion dollars worldwide. It came just short, just short. Body wants to, but Shrek 2, though. But Shrek 2, so you know, right. and, and that, that was there's that. And then, uh, are any of you guys Harry Potter people? I am no. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Prisoner, of oh, Azkaban. okay, 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 yeah, that one, that one, I'll give him, give that Seven, one, I'll give him. That, that, that film nine. fucking rules. That film that's, does rule. That's a good film. That's a great film. I, I'll give the, that the, one. The director of that's a big name director. I think it's Sam Mendes. No, it's not Sam Mendes. Oh. Um, like, I don't know here. who directed that, he, but I know he's the one that directed the rest of the films. Oh, really? I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Prisoner that's why it looks vi so visually different from the first two films. I've never seen any Harry Potter film. I've never damn it mm. yeah well so anyway 788 and then spider-man 2 came out i'm sorry 795 for harry potter alfonso caron quadron gravity is one of my favorite movies of all time um, amazing director gravity. oh my god yeah he i think he did birdman no or, or, anyway no, I, doesn't matter. I think he did children birdman of was men. Done by Inarutu. he did do children of men um spider-man 2 came in at 788 so it was the third highest grossing movie that year and this year that move that that year, the Credibles came, the Credibles came out. Meet the Flockers came out. Oh my God, Troy came out. So you know, the top tier is is really Shrek to Harry Potter and Spider Man too. Um, but yeah, honestly, guys, it made it, it's interesting because he, here's the disconnect where the budget went up, but the earnings came down, and that's this odd dance between people maybe they didn't know what to expect maybe the people that came out for the second or the first one didn't come out for the second i know i didn't so it was you know it earned a fair amount of money less than than the original one and huh. it's reviewed higher than the original one so the the disconnect is there in the examination and a lot of people felt like it wasn't going to be you know, sequel scare was going on right now a lot of people felt that the sequel would never top the first one. It wouldn't even come close because at that point in time, that's true. That, that, in, in, in that moment, in that window, that decade, that was true. So, but you know, it, it is, it did earn a shit ton of money, 788 million worldwide in its run. Uh, but it did not, didn't do as well as the first one, even though I hate to keep saying it, that critically it was received much higher than the first one. So, but yeah, I don't Crazy. know. I don't know. Really weird. 
Yeah. And then, you know, pretty soon we're going to start seeing uh, the Fast and Furious franchise roll into these numbers too, Eric. I believe that in 2000, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Once the third one comes out, I think everything starts, third and fourth, and everything starts changing. Oh, you mean Uh, Tokyo Drift? The best film in the franchise? I'm sorry. I was wrong. The fourth one. I apologize. You're right. I I, I tend to. Oh, you mean Fast and Furious, the reboot? That's the one where Toretto came back, where uh, Vin Diesel came back. Because you realize that Pitch Black wasn't going to keep him in the penthouse in Hollywood. <laughs> so <laughs> true. So, uh, yeah. Incorrectly, he came back for Tokyo Drift. So just at the yeah. end, just at the end. Yeah. So, so got, specifically got because the uh, the screenings were weren't as positive as the studio wanted, so they had him mm-hmm. come back for the ending stinger. Is that true? It's true. I did hmm. not know that. True. That That's was a reshoot. Interesting. Did not know that. Yeah. Fast well, and Furious facts for the next <laughs> inst- for the next Geek Explained Extra Fast Facts oh, for the next Geek Explained Extra series. Oh, Get ready God. for it. It's going to be incredible. Uh, Eric, what am I going to tell my wife? It's just like, hey, honey, you're going to you're going to tell her it's about family. You're going to tell her we're going to take it one quarter mile at a time. <laughs> oh, man. I, I I should say though that what it made the opening weekend. I should that's I I, I want to bring that up too. Um, so for, for the, for the weekend gross, it was $373 million, which, wow. you know, um, yeah. So it was, well, that, I'm sorry, that's not right. That was North America, 373 in North America for the, for the span that I ran here. So I will say that Lord of the Rings came out, did a number on it and Revenge mm-hmm. of the Sith. I'm sorry. Revenge of the Sith came out, did a number on it too. Wow. Yeah. Good time. Wild so, time. Yeah. What a year of movies. 2004 yeah. was. 2004 yeah. was a good year. Wild. I mean, it was great. Uh, f- uh, it ran forty million dollars in its first day, so yeah. I mean, so that and and you know, the, it would held for a year. Then the next year, Revenge of the Sith got it for fifty million, and um, wow. you know, uh, Andrew, your Lord of the Rings trilogy, thirty four point <laughs> five. It's its first day. This was released on a Wednesday. So was Lord of the Rings. So it held the it held the record for the highest Wednesday release too, which is odd. I don't know why it would be released on a Wednesday. But um, that is weird. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's wild, guys. But but yeah, I, I still don't get how it didn't earn more money. That 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 kind of doesn't sit. This is weird with me. I don't know if I don't know if I, I don't know if I love it. Which is really weird it. because it it earned fifteen different awards. <laughs> I'm not going to run through all of them here, but some that I wanted to uh, to highlight won the Saturn Award. Uh, actually won a few Saturn awards for best fantasy film, best actor, best director, and best writer. It won the empire award for best director. Uh, it won the AFI award for best movie of the year. It won the BMI film music award for Danny Elfman. Again, it also won, and people don't talk about this enough. It won, it won uh, an award for, from the uh, world stunt awards. They do happen. Oh, nice. They need to be given a higher spotlight. But I was gonna say. I mean, they, they need to be in different places, but yes, they, they do happen. But they they won the best overall stunt award for Chris Daniels and Michael Huggins. I just want to drop their names in because stunt actors don't get enough credit. One hundred percent. And then true. finally, it won an Academy Award for best visual effects. What? Yeah. Yeah, 
it's an Oscar winning film, baby. <laughs> Just like Suicide Squad. Oh, God. Oh, God. Don't say that. Oh, the man. benchmark for Oscar winning superhero. <laughs> oh. So as we're wrapping up here, any final thoughts on the film and what would you give it out of 10? I'm going to start with AJ. Uh, I mean, so much fun, way better than what I expected. Um, had a really good time with it. And, you know, what would I give it out of 10? Um, yeah, give it a solid 7.5. I think it's, you know, good solid like seven movie. Like, again, a lot of good fun parts, a lot of great things, but still a few missteps here or there. Fair enough. And Chris? Tobey Maguire. <laughs> yeah, Toby. Fair. No, I mean, I would give it a nine. Like, it's, it's from, you have, I look at, the soundtrack right I, I just i can't get past that in the hype for me and, and this is the thing i i wasn't hyped about it when it came out like oh cool another one's coming out whatever but i think maybe that's that's why i felt so excited when i saw it because maybe my expectations were tempered going in the problem with that was i was so hyped after two i was excited for three and then we'll we'll talk about that's a whole nother train wreck but you know for me i really enjoy two i, I can't say enough good things about it i think outside of Outside of Garfield's probably second one, I would say this is probably my favorite Spider-Man film. So I, I would I would definitely give it a nine. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I absolutely agree with what both of you have said. Like there are definitely some warts on here. It's not a perfect film, but I genuinely found myself really invested in the film as a whole. It is a thrill ride from start to finish, has some of the most iconic Spider-Man film moments throughout his entire history on the silver screen. And I would easily give this an eight out of 10. Easily, no contest. I really do think that this film is a banger of a film. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it is worth your time, worth the revisit for sure, and you should check it out. But that is going to do it for this edition of Spidey Sember. Uh, gentlemen, we're about to head into, into some troubled waters here because next episode we're going to be diving into Spider-Man 3. Closing out the trilogy, uh, this is going to be a wild ride. So tune in for that next time. Uh, but for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Chris Carter. AJ Kincaid. And we will see you next time.